The biggest problem with Jim Jarmusch's films since Stranger Than Paradise is that he edits shots. You should go back to every scene being a whole, what is a single shot. Actually, I hate films that are edited, rapidly edited. It, yeah. it, it seems to me this relating to the attention span of the audiences. I saw the Steven Seagal film last night that I don't think any shot lasted longer than half a second. It was huh. awful. This is the Diabolique webcast, and I'm your host, Stephen Slaughterhead. Joining me on the webcast again is David Kleiler, former film professor at Babson College and artistic director at the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Brookline, Massachusetts. On this episode, we're going to discuss Jim Jarmusch's latest film, Only Lovers Left Alive. The film had a limited release here in the U.S. over the past couple months, and if you haven't seen it, you really must. I, I guess that's a way of saying... Spoiler warning for this episode, we get to talking about a few things. Nevertheless, we hope you enjoy the discussion. Are we, are we, when are we starting? No, we're just starting into, we're just starting, we, we already started. We have started? Oh, good. This is a, a good, you know, about a very relaxed and lethargic uh, director. We're going to have a very relaxed and lethargic conversation. If Jarmusch is relaxed and lethargic, that is certainly, those are th- certainly admirable uh, qualities. Because to be that way and, and yet not have his films be uh, uninteresting, that's talent. I think perhaps it's the dialogue that keeps a lot of his, um, the momentum in his films uh, going. Well, clearly his films are not necessarily plot-driven. They're very heavy on atmosphere, and there's a tone and feel about the scenes and about his characters. Mm. Uh, it's continuous from film to film, and certainly mm. is there with a little bit more, um, you know, maybe substance behind it. You know, I, I, I feel like Jarmusch maintains this constant tone of coolness and he gets to operate in this space you know with the, with his latest movie only lovers left alive he operates in this this comfortable tone of of coolness i mean i think th- there's so much style radiating from this film from the production design to uh um you know the the wardrobe the the, the musical choices that he makes it's very style driven and and comfortable it's it's as though Jarmusch knows something a little bit more about style than everybody else it's interesting the things that he's known for the coolness it's almost like self-consciously cool uh you can't get any hipper than Adam and Eve the two lead vampires but you know David self-consciously cool yes but I feel like there isn't a point in the movie where the pretension flag is waved well, it maybe, didn't step into pretension for, for me. It's sort of funny because I did feel uh, it almost like it was a studied coolness, but actually self-consciously cool would be an oxymoron. You can't be cool and be self-conscious. Yeah. But it seemed to be... See, one of the things I like about the film is that uh, all of a sudden applying the coolness to a vampire film, it, it's like a reflection not only on his own style, but as a reflection on the va- vampire uh, mythology. And it's kind of interesting the way I think that intertwines there. It's, it's a, I can't imagine 
enjoying the film on, on a level I think it's meant to be enjoyed without really knowing what he's doing with the vampire myth. I think that this, a fair amount of it is about Mr. Jarmusch himself, who was a night owl, yeah. who has made films that where the characters he tends to, you know, like they all take place during evening hours. He's, he's a, I've read that he's a, he's a, you know, nocturnal person. Maybe he is a vampire. Maybe. Well, Maybe that, that's that, what he's saying to us. Night, that you night know? on Earth, which is, again, you know, extremely looks like structured. A Five stories that go on all yeah. at night by cab drivers. Yeah. I can sort of relate to that because I prefer nights to days. I yeah. can see that. I think he likes the quietness. At least the characters, Tom Hiddleston's character in this movie, likes the quietness of night. I mean, how could he? He's not. He's been living for maybe, geez, 2,000 years and uh, has devoted his life to helping artists achieve greater uh, fame. I, I guess his character is responsible for uh, many uh, orchestral works. Yeah, mostly music, yeah. which, of course, musicians are also a night breed. Yeah. And after all, uh, in his very first film, Strangers in Paradise, I mean, John Lurie is from, from the music world. Yeah. Uh, and not from the film world. I, I think Jarmusch, whatever he does, it's, it's inseparable from great music or, or music that's at the forefront of some version of cool. You know, it, you, do you recall Mystery Train? Yeah. Vaguely. Well, it wasn't uh, one of these Night Owl movies, but it was more like a, a music journey where this... Uh, Japanese couple, um, they, they make a pilgrimage to their idea of their, their, their sort of mecca of music. They're coming from uh, Tokyo to, um, uh, I forget if it was Memphis or Nashville, but they wanted to see this uh, recording studio where all these classics were made. And it's about that journey. And they're kind of, you know, they're, they're not vibrant characters. How many vibrant characters do you have in a Jarmusch film? Exactly. They just sort of uh, exist and Actually, move along the weird, through the story. The weird thing about Only Lovers is that when, what's her name, Mia, the little sister comes uh, in. Mia Vashikovska. That's a, um, I never can pronounce the name adequately. Uh, I had to interview her once. Okay, I made sure. But all of a sudden, the film changes tone with her scenes because she's very hyper. Except, yeah, I don't think I've seen this in a Jarmusch film before. Because she, it's almost, it's almost for people who who don't like the film. They say that's my favorite scene in the film because you know that's, a, that's more a, conventionally melodramatic. Yeah, that's that's interesting because until she comes along, the movie is you know in its in its cool mode. The characters are kind of blasé. Uh, Tom Huddleston, Hiddleston plays yeah. the uh, uh, the eternal musician who's so I think he's reached his the end of his uh, understanding of humanity. He's his faith. He's in the bit of a uh, you know, a life crisis. And for a vampire, that's a thing to be in a life crisis because you have a lot of life. So his, uh, I guess, in uh, for lack of a better word, uh, manservant, who would you call the the fellow, the the, uh, the rock and roller kid who hangs out with them? Yeah. He asks him to... Not a protege, but you know, yeah, a gopher. Yeah. <laughs> um, one night he says, can you make me a wooden bullet? Mm-hmm. So he comes back the next day with a wooden bullet. And uh, Hiddleston puts it in a gun and he puts the gun under the bed. But he plays out this idea in his mind of killing himself, shooting himself through the heart. And um, he, uh, I, th- I think his call to um, Tilda Swinton, his wife, who lives, I guess, essentially on the other side of, in Tangiers, is a, sort of a call for help. And she comes to visit him. 
and uh, everything's kind of blasé until Mia Vashikovska shows up and she's like all bubbly and I and mm-hmm. I electric and she wants to go do things and she gets she's like you got to go out you got to see music you got to go out and do things and it's it's a tone change in the film now she she changes mm-hmm. the tone of the movie and she also ruins their lives yeah I love it it's the only place in the film we see fangs in a vampire film and any man you know we don't see the only she's the only one with fangs it's it's the whole vampire uh rule book you know that we assume but then uh, there's only a couple of moments that sort of pay well off. it is interesting with that maybe lethargy is not the right word maybe there's a sense of ennui about it uh mm. there's a tiredness uh, i've just been reading a script or helping out with a movie called death gets a life but basically it's the same situation death's tired of his job Mm. And he wants to do something else. First, he quits, and you know uh, things go awry uh, when he quits. But these guys have been vampires. That was, you know, that's certainly the, the name's Adam and Eve, and you go all the way through. There's so much literary reference in the film, which is kind of an ego trip for those of us who recognize the references. But still, it conveys the timelessness or the interchangeability of all this. In fact, okay, uh, in this at this point, we're was it Daisy Buchanan and, and uh, Stephen Dedalus when they're on the plane? You know, the, the names they give are... Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know... And they have to make the special ra- arrangements to only travel at night. Right. And that's kind of funny. You know, vampire problems. <laughs> yeah, right. I do think he's redeemed, though. I mean, assuming, for those of you listening, that uh, you've had the opportunity to see the, f- to, to see the film, I, I, I don't want to spoil it, but I, but I think... The way things transpire, Tom Hiddleston, I think I think his character's name is Ian, I could be wrong. He he without explanation finds a way out of this funk. And I think it's because by being forced to move away from his house, if I didn't mention it before, he's created this uh life for himself in the in a, in a rundown area of uh, western Detroit where there're not too many people around, but some local rock and roll kids have kind of realized that he, the artist, who they don't know is a vampire, lives there. They visited uh, his place. Plus, with what happens with Mia Vashikovska visiting and what she does to his uh, uh, manservant, they, they, they got to get out of town. And, that, and, and I think that that major change for him is what he needed to start, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, love being a vampire again. In other words, start from having nothing and then the necessities survive and to be with the one that he loves, Tilda Swinton, uh, that um, that's, I think, how maybe things were re- reinvigorated for him. Well, that is an unusual word, reinvigorating, which is also sort of an oxymoron for a Jim Jarmusch film, the mm-hmm. idea of being energized or reinvigorated. Uh, the performance still is a little bit on the laid back side mm-hmm. after all of that. Yeah. Especially when they're in Tangiers. I, don't, I didn't see a, a change in the way they related to each other in the kind of conversations they were ha- having. They were um, shallow. All vampires are shallow. <laughs> are they? You know, it's all about the arts. It's all about how you look, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe he had had just enough of the shallowness, but uh, Hey, at least they had Skype. They can communicate via Skype now. <laughs> uh, she didn't have the same, uh, I don't know. This, this is, maybe this is like fighting vampire depression. She didn't have the same sort of uh, gloomy outlook on things that he developed. So you see a a, a, a vamp an arc in the film, hmm. a character arc. I, I, even though the scene with Mia is is 
it's actually center in the film in some ways, maybe yeah. two thirds of the way through. Yeah. Does it transform their characters? It changes their location and maybe snaps them out of it for a while. But I, I still, I think their their style was pretty much uh, the same. I think you can't come out of this uh, thinking that even though there's a lot of clever things, the fact that they drink their blood as if it were like going to a really expensive wine store. Mm. I mean, there are all kinds of great you know touches in the film. But even that they deal with with a certain degree of indifference, whether it's ennui or lethargy. But there's a certain kind of way that they seem to be indifferent. Uh, they have been doing it for so long. And What's, whether it's the 18th century or 17th yeah. uh, century or, or 21st century, it's all the same. I think it's because they, at certain points, become disappointed in humanity. Uh, Ian came to refer to them as zombies now. They don't have the same vivaciousness or, you know, they aren't like energetically reaching out to create these great works of art anymore. Things that, uh, these points of interest about humanity that sort of sustains his interest in living. Maybe it's a statement about the times. Maybe it's a statement about how, well, there is some sort of lamenting about the downturn of Detroit and the state of, you know, like Motown that whole music scene. Maybe this is Jarmish being like, uh, America was once great, this music was once great, but now where are we? Well, yeah. And um, apart from the other tonal things, it's, it's a, um, there's a, a sort of a Weltschmerz in the whole thing, a world weariness. Mm. Uh, which, of course, in a completely different style of film is true of Grand Budapest Hotel this year. Yeah. There's a Weltschmerz, uh, a world weariness. That, that That's is. a term. I'm not familiar with that term. It's obviously a German word, but uh, it's called world hurt, Schmerz. And so there's a kind of a, but it's a, you know, really it's just, its use is mostly in terms of a kind of a, uh, just a tiredness of the world. And um, I immediately thought that this is something that would be used to describe German expressionism. That's possible. But I haven't thought about it, you know, literally that way. But also I think the idea of uh, one of the things you've been hitting on about the, the the music there's a kind of a and again a film like the Grand Budapest Hotel which is so stylistically different they're like opposites but there's a kind of way the old order was once good but what we're heading into isn't so great anymore you know mm. you're talking about the choice of Detroit isn't that the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, well that would be I think Cleveland is it Cleveland the, okay you're right uh, Motown you're right. Hall of Fame I think Motown Hall okay and Detroit has become of the major cities emblematic of decay yeah and uh you know what once was and mm. uh certainly you have that here in terms of the, the characters and i can't think of a film where a film a vampire film where we know that vampires don't but there's the whole sense of like oh god we've been do we've been doing this for centuries and it's like the weight of all of that seems to be heavily on both the characters well i think What's perhaps different, if there is only a very little that's different in the vampire mythology here, is that they're not antagonistic towards humans. They're not, um, I don't think, any, at least any of the vampires in this movie aren't, uh, you know, they're, they're not out to just kill to kill. You know, it's not as savage as, say, uh, Interview with the Vampire or the Anne Rice novels, or certainly not as goofy in any way as the Twilight films, but they seem to retain a certain respect, at least creatively, for uh, 
humans as opposed to the arrogance. Uh, there wasn't that. You didn't get the sense that they were, uh, you know, that this is anything about murder. It's only about survival. Oh, and the way Jarmish films the scenes where the vampires get a hit of their drug, the vampires taste the blood, the reaction, the way the, way, the, way the camera is, is really tight on their face, and then the reaction is in slow motion and the camera pulls back. Okay. And it's like this vampire version of beautiful agony. Mm-hmm. It's the addict getting their drug and the response, and he captures it so closely. These are, these are like uh, fall-away moments. That's a good point, because um, there's the blood, of course, and there's always been a sexual element to the vampire lore. Mm. Uh, but the humans in the film aren't necessarily thought, uh, treated as prey, yeah. only in that one scene. And so, uh, yeah, that's... You know, we don't have this sort of fear for the human being stuck in the neck. Mm. It just doesn't work that way. Mm. That's what I love about the uh, the fine wine comparison. Yeah. But you're you right know, with the way that's filmed. That's good. Um, but we don't see that with them. They don't, there's nothing excitingly sexual about their presence in the film or their relationship. Well, for me, with Tilda Swinton on screen, well, she, she's, she's, she's exotic. She's fascinating to look at. She's a, she is a creature. But uh, what, what a casting choice. And I, and I think that Jarmish wanted her to be in this film for as long as he's, he had been um, trying to make it, but he couldn't get the financing. But boy, you know, as a vampire, uh, Tilda Swinton, that works. Unquestionably. Well, she certainly has had a range of roles. The first time I think I saw her was in Orlando. Yeah. And again, there's a kind of an androgynous, a, she's a very androgynous she, Yeah, person. I think that's what I was kind of bouncing around, the idea yeah. was that she's... But I saw her, uh, it was a film with one of those great rough British actors um, where she plays a pregnant Welsh farm housewife. She's absolutely convincing there, too. Mm. And it looks, she's, within the, just the same period of time, she's an old lady in, in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, you're right. I forgot that she had done that. She's yeah. She's uh, she's she's going to always have employed for her exoticness. Well, she certainly has. Uh, I know that I would have trouble recognizing if I didn't know she was in it. Yeah, I would might have trouble just recognizing her cold. Oh, that's Tilda, Tilda Swinton. You know what's interesting? Michael Fassbender was originally cast to be uh, the lead. Oh, really? And for some reason, I don't know what he uh, was replaced in the eleventh hour by uh, Tom Hiddleston. I think it would have worked. Interesting that um, Tom Hiddleston had to pick it up and got to, got to pick it up and go with it, and, and he um, did. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, terrific. I I think this is right now. It's it really is my favorite Jarmusch film. I mean, I really liked Coffee and Cigarettes. I I, I did much like The Limits of Control, but but this I think is uh, you know its tone. And the music, the music mix, it just, I, I remember leaving the theater thinking that this, this was just all around great. Yeah. Uh, but since, you know, you're right about the stylization here and the use of color here is terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly lots of red. It's a good nighttime film with all those, you know, those deep reds. It's not for everyone though, but. But I still like his black and white stuff like Dead Man and the first yeah. one, Stranger Than Paradise. Because yeah. I think my fondness for Stranger Than Paradise when I saw it when it came out, right at the really 
beginning of the peaking of uh, the independent film movement. It was so radically different from anything else that, that, mm. that the my my impression of that stays with me. How it would stay with me if I were to watch it now, I don't know. But I just remember like, oh my God, nobody's making a film like this. Yeah. You know, I would like to recommend to listeners that if they haven't seen this movie called Blank City about guerrilla filmmaking in the mid-80s in New York, early 80s, um, Mr. Jarmusch is heavily featured in the film. And that oh, that's did a right. lot to go and shape my uh, opinion you know, of him and him talking about the making of his early films. Uh, I think it's on Netflix. Came out a couple of years ago, but we showed it, David. We showed that over at uh, your place. I, I think remember a while ago. Uh, it's so funny. We're talking about this as a Jarmusch film, and it's funny we're not uh, talking about it that much. It's like character. It's, it's the vampires are in a Jarmusch film. I think probably I think of this more as a Jarmusch film than as a vampire film. Yeah, I would too. And you're probably right about this, that in terms of how he's evolved as a filmmaker and the kind of concerns that he has, that this is a great vehicle for some of that. He had so much trouble trying to find financing for this, and you'd think that that wouldn't be a problem. But I would add that I, I recently interviewed Rod, Rob Reiner, and Reiner said, which I'm relating to uh, Jim Jarmusch here, is that you cannot believe how hard it is to get financing for your films these days. That ho He said that Hollywood doesn't want to make a movie by me, didn't want to make the ones that I've made, and, and aren't interested in the ones I'm doing in the future. So, so where do they look? So for this movie, Jarmusch sought uh, financing outside uh, the U.S. It's a British-German-produced film. Well, that's Technically, true. it's country... Of origin is, was listed as uh, England and Germany. That's true with a lot of independent you know what takes films takes place these in days. the U.S. One of the great producers, she's been around for 20 years, a lot of gay films, Todd Haynes' films, she's produced all of those. Christine mm -hmm. Vachon, um, she talks every every film she's ever produced, it's, even though some of the big ones like that have made like like Far From, uh, far from Heaven, mm -hmm. um, every film has been a struggle in terms of raising money. And it's true for... Anybody who's an independent filmmaker. Uh, and so the, the big days of independent film, it's no money, no problem raising uh, money for a film like Edge of Tomorrow, even with Tom Cruise's $20 million salary. Mm. But the independent thing is completely just really hard. They um, have a, a ways to go to get their money back on uh, Only Lovers Left Alive. I believe it costs $7 million to make and... Really, only it's that made much. four and a half. So I would say to everybody, get out and see this, or pay to download. Yeah, you, know, you got to pay to download it, I guess. But if the Blu-ray hasn't already come out, definitely do. Uh, it's very worth it. Yeah, because it's more of a dramatic film, and it was never marketed really as a vampire film. And yeah. what's happening now uh, with genre films, they pre-sell to foreign markets, uh, yeah. and. Like a friend of mine just made a film with Ryan Reynolds. It was shot in Germany. And even before, because he was in it, and it was a genre horror film, it sold before they even started shooting the film. Hmm. And so there wasn't the problem in raising the money. Is the plot a little bit weird? Yeah, Ryan Reynolds plays a sort of a, uh, just gets let out of a mental institution. And when, he, when his cat talks him into taking himself off meds, he goes off and decapitates women and puts their uh, heads in the refrigerator and they talk to him. Oh, wonderful. But they made it for $12 million hmm. and it pre-sold. Um, it's a psychological thriller. Hmm. 
a little weird, but because he's in it. Yeah, even though they're recognizable names, Tilda Swinton and Mia are not the recognizable names. They don't pre-sell any market at all. Hmm. And that's the way it, that's the way it goes these days. I mean, producers got to have faith in him, and his producer does. Yeah. yeah, but that's the way films get financed. You know, even though what's his face Johnny Depp's had four losers in a row, uh, I'm sure it's not going to be any problem for Lionsgate to get money for when he, he, they make the Houdini film. Well, maybe Mr. Jarmusch might have to go back to Johnny Depp. You know, he he would have been terrific in this role in uh, Only yeah. Lovers Left Alive. Maybe schedules didn't work. I can only guess. That could have been. I don't know whether I even approached him. I mean, Johnny Depp's too busy making movies that are multi, uh, enormous budget films. Mm. When was the last time Johnny Depp made a little film? Um, Rum Diary, uh, a couple okay, of years ago. Okay, right there. And he, made, uh, he made that uh, Polanski film. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and he you know, has his origins in, in you know, independent film. As soon as he came out at the same time, not only as Grand Budapest Hotel, but also yeah. Under the Skin, which is another, it's a genre film, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So if you go in expecting a science fiction film, I mean, all these films, which are not quite what they seem to be in terms of the genre, is her a science fiction film? Mm, I suppose, a little bit. Yeah, what well, is a little bit, but one doesn't go to see a movie like her thinking of going to see a science fiction film. David, let me end with a question that you asked me last night. What do you think of the title, Only Lovers Left Alive? Um, My take on it, but... Even though we don't see the passion between the two leads, uh, I do think that, in talking about the... um, I don't want to give away the last shot, uh, but there is something about their respect for people who are lovers. That's Uh, what I was thinking. And that... The last scene shots are, they're, they're weak because they don't... Well, I think the idea being is that when, you know, they're vampires and you get the idea that like... This is prey. They, yeah, this is prey. But at the same time, they're people who have a connection with each other. Yeah. And, so it's and they get left alone. Yeah. And, and maybe the arc in the film is that, you know, there, there is still something that's vital... In, in human existence and in a vampire's existence in a vampire movie yeah. it's kind of interesting but I think it, it, I feel like the film's almost like a meditation on, on the genre as opposed to um, you know it's it's kind of interesting the way he, he he works it into some of his own thematic concerns there's moments in the movie where like just the references to uh, the way hipsters like things mm-hmm. you know the proper way to make a to make a record, the proper way to release it, the clothes you wear. You know, these these shallow stylistic things. I think that that's, those are where some of the laughs in the movie come from, but it's not about that. It's it's about uh, connecting. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's a film really, um, it didn't do that well at the box office, but it got a lot surprising. of, re, um, it doesn't fulfill a lot of the expectations people who go to see a vampire film hmm. would have. On the other hand, it's a film really to savor, so to speak. Yeah. I think that's a good way to end it. Yep. David, thanks for taking the time. Okay.
thanks for listening, everybody. You can visit us online at DiaboliqueMagazine.com. And of course, don't forget to pick up the latest issue of Diabolique Magazine. If you have any comments about the webcast, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email. I'm at Steve at HorrorUnlimited.com. I'm Stephen Slaughterhead. Until next time, so long, everyone. Thank you.